0: invite you to turn in your bible with me this evening to psalm 36 psalm 36 it's a psalm that uh, presents two great contrasts the wickedness of men and the glory and the goodness of god And we'll see uh, this evening that this is, this is where we live. The title of my message is Living Between Two Worlds. Let's uh, look at Psalm 36, beginning at verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God or the mighty mountains would be another way of uh, translating that. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to this um, love song of David as he looks to you and worships. I pray, Lord, that tonight you would lead us in that same experience of seeing your glory, your beauty, and uh, worshiping, delighting in and tasting your goodness. Uh, we pray it, Lord, for the satisfying of our souls and the honoring of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. There's something about being a person that uh, we identify with uh, places, uh, per- usually the place where you were born. Uh, so if you were, uh, uh, have a, uh, were not born here in West Michigan, uh, you were born and lived most of your life uh, as a young person growing up in some other place, there's something unique about going back there. You identify with it. You, you understand that, that place. It feels like home. You fit there. You belong there. Uh, one of the things, uh, the unique things about being a Christian is that we become homeless in a sense. Uh, spiritually speaking, we don't really know where we fit because we live in this strange uh, existence between two worlds. We, we are citizens of heaven and we have tastes of heaven. We have some experiences of the, of the realities that we're going to experience fully then, but it's just in part now and we're not there yet. And, and so we're here in this, in this world, and we, we sense, and the more you grow in your faith, the, the more deeply you sense this, I don't fit here. I don't belong here. I don't think the jokes are funny. I don't think um, the, the, the life here is all that satisfying, no matter how good it might be. They're, I just want more. This, I don't belong here in, in some sense. And so Peter will write in his, in his letter to the elect exiles A living in this world, they're elect; they belong to God. They are exiles, strangers, and foreigners uh, in this world. Well, David here senses that uh, reality and and talks about then these these two worlds that that he lives between. He lives here in this world um, between, in a sense, heaven and hell. Not just heaven and hell as ultimate destinies, but as present forces and realities. And so he looks in the world and he sees deep evil, real evil. And then he, he uh, looks to God and sees exalted goodness. And that's where we live. We live in a world where we are witnesses to evil, genuine, true evil evil, the, the awful evils of history and the things we read, uh, the, the scandals that maybe you read in the newspaper, and then the evils that we've normalized ourselves to, the, the, the evils of, of um, just normal lying, thieving, stealing, lusting, um, self-promoting, self-justifying, all the things that we're just sort of comfortable with, uh, but nonetheless radically contrary to the person and the will of God. That's on the one hand, but that's not the only place we live. We, we also, as Christians, have been able by the power of God to see glory. God isn't just a term for us. It's not a, it's not a religious idea. The, the gospel isn't just a story. Uh, the, the fact is, 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 if the Holy Spirit has taken residence in, in your heart, those things resonate with Glory. They're beautiful, they're magnificent, they're stunning even at times And when the fog of your mind kind of clears and and your spiritual apathy gives way and and every once in a while it just the the beauty of it breaks through and you see the grandeur, you see the, the splendor, the magnificence of God. We don't know. When David wrote this uh, psalm, it's not connected to any particular event. It seems to be a psalm that just sort of fits with life as. We live it. But it's clear that David is gripped by these two great opposing realities, the the wickedness of men and the overwhelming goodness of God. Kidner says, this is a psalm of powerful contrast, a glimpse of human wickedness at its most malevolent and divine goodness in its many-sided fullness. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, The, the wickedness then of mankind and the glory and the beauty of God in contrast. I encourage you to keep your Bible open. We're going to follow it very closely. Maybe you just even want to take notes or highlight, underline, as we go through this, uh, this uh, psalm. <clears throat> David begins in verses 1 through 4, talking about the wicked. And the psalm begins with a very unusual phrase. Um, to the choir master of David, a servant of David, the servant of the Lord. And the Hebrew says, an oracle of uh, transgression. An oracle of transgression, it's interpreted transgression speaks to the wicked, and that is true, but by using the word oracle here, uh, we get a sense of what's taking place. An oracle is a revelation, sort of a message from the other world. Oracles would be be, um, men or women who claim to have the ability to bring messages from the other side. The, um, but God would give oracles, and so prophets would say, an oracle of the Lord. Here's a message from God, a message from um, the spiritual realm, from heaven itself. Well, here's an oracle of transgression. Transgression is personalized. Evil is speaking. Speaking. Evil is uh, the counselor, David is saying, the, the teacher of the wicked man. It speaks and it does so deep in a man's heart. Transgression is not just standing along the, the roadside um, with, um, with slogans or invitations for people to do things they ought not to do. Transgression is carrying out that ministry deep in the heart of man. He has access because of man's sinful nature. And so so transgression uh, holds counsel with the spirit of a wicked man and teaches him in the secret places of his heart the ways that he ought to go as he follows the prince of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. As he does wicked things. You see... we. We, uh, we so often think of sin in a very uh, sort of superficial way. We think of sin as doing things you shouldn't do. But the Bible always talks about sin as this spiritual energy, this spiritual force, this, this dynamic of rebellion against God. And the devil is always involved. And the reason he's so effective is because he has an ally in our sinful heart. But the, we saw that this morning, where, and, and recently, where the devil enters into the heart of Judas. And, and this morning, Jesus says the devil is, has demanded of the Father to, to, to have you, the disciples. The devil is active. You see that way back in the beginning in uh, Genesis chapter four when uh, Cain and Abel bring their sacrifices and and Abel's sacrifice is acceptable and pleasing to God and and Cain's is not and Cain is angry and God comes and says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? And then he says this to Cain. He says, Cain's sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You gotta wake up, Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. And its desire is to have you. But Cain, of course, did not listen to the Lord. God says you must rule over it. He didn't rule over it. He gave way to it and he murdered his brother. That's the story of humanity. The wickedness of men. This, this root reality of uh, of transgression speaking deep to the the hearts of men. And and out of that then you have the fruits of of wicked attitudes and wicked actions. Of verses 1 and 2, there is no fear of God before his eyes. The the Hebrew word translated fear here is is not the normal word when when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, but this is which is holy reverence and awe. The wicked man certainly doesn't have that. But this Term means dread. There's no, there's no, there's no dread of God. Uh, wicked men aren't afraid of God. They, they're just, if they believe in Him, uh, they, they've created a caricature of Him that that um, that holds no threat, no, nothing to be afraid of whatsoever. Well, what happens to naturally rebellious people when they have no fear of? Of a response to their evil behavior. What happens to children when, when they have no fear of parental response to sin? Well, they're, they're off the rails. There's, they have no boundaries. I, I remember, you know, as, as a child, one of the blessings, if you grew up in a Christian home, one of the blessings was parents who responded seriously to sin and often painfully to sin. So that when someone suggested, let's do X, right? There was something in your little heart that went, boy, that sounds fun. That's a terrible idea. (laughs) Because mom and dad, A, will find out and will respond in a painful manner. Don't want to do that. Well, see, that's what's not there in a wicked man. There's no fear of God. He's He's not afraid of God. He scoffs at the idea. And there's no sense of really God functioning in any meaningful sense. God is a sovereign creator who, who made me, who owns me, a, a God to whom uh, I, I, have an, I am obligated to honor as God and, and to give thanks to all the gifts that I have, none of which I deserve. And so people neither honor God as God nor give thanks to him, Romans chapter 1. Roger Ellsworth said, Man conducts his life without reference to God. And without reverence for him. When he looks at life and how to conduct it, he sees all sorts of opportunities to gratify his desire to do evil. But he cannot, he will not see God. And I think the important thing so often there is he he will not see God. Uh, People can put the dots together. They can can sense that if I acknowledge that there actually is a God, I'm not going to be able to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. And so we'll just decide there's no God. No fear of God. I don't know a better explanation for the madness that we see in our world today. Where utter moral nonsense is happening because people are convinced of that, that there is no God and there is no need to fear God. And so we can simply make it up as we go along according to our own sinful desires. It, there is no God, and so who has the right to determine with whom I sleep or, or whom I marry? Who has the right to make that decision for me? Well, God does. God does. Your body is not your own. Even if you don't believe in him, your body is not your own. He made it in his image for his glory. And, and, and so you don't have the right to do with your body whatever you like. Abortion, same issue. Who gets to decide what I do with my body? Well, God does. God does, all the time. Who gets to decide if, if I'm a boy or a girl or whatever of the hundreds of other gender preferences I might like? Who, who gets to say? God? He, he gets to say, all the time. You see, you, you can pretend there's no God and, and, and you can live this way, but it's just wickedness and you are absolutely fooling yourself. Verse 2 talks about the way that people fool themselves. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Uh, the, the, you see, the, the wicked person, uh, it, in his flattery, these, these are things he tells himself, see? I, um, his, his sin cannot be found out. And it cannot be be hated. This is the devil's counsel, and and it, and it finds a, a willing audience. The devil says, "Right, no one will know. You stole a little money. You you've committed some secret sexual sin. You've hidden it well. You've told a lie." You've just, in some way, have rebelled against God, but you did it well. You did it secretly. No one's going to know. Jesus says, except that it's going to be shouted from the rooftops. There's no secret sin. Not ultimately. But that's what the devil says. This is what Ananias and Sapphira sh- surely talked about, maybe when, when uh, they, they sold their piece of land, remember in Acts chapter 5, and, and then they, they came and they, uh, they brought the money to the, the, uh, the elders, uh, acting as though it were the whole amount. They both knew it wasn't the whole amount, and yet they must have had a little conversation. Well, let's, let's pretend it is, and, and we'll get the accolades, and, and maybe one of them would say, yeah, but what if we had found out? And, and the other would say, how would anybody know? You can't go on Zillow and find the, the, the price of the property. How would anybody know what we got for the property? No one will ever know. And so Ananias comes and he brings his gift and he lays it down, and Peter looks him right in the eyes and says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? God knows. You see, the, the foolish person, this wicked person, flatters himself that it won't be found out, and it's always found out. And he flatters himself that it won't be hated. He flatters himself that his, his sin isn't a, of the, the hateful sort, and that there's, there's no real judgment to be concerned with. He, he scoffs at the idea of eternal consequences. And so it just, it just, you see, it doesn't matter to him. If, if you say to him, do you realize you'll, you'll stand before a, a holy God in the last day, he, either he doesn't believe that day is going to happen, or he believes that the good that he's done will outweigh these few things that he probably shouldn't have done. But he has no sense that these things that he has done are, are hateful, despicable things that God abhors these things and will pour out his holy anger and wrath upon them. He, he doesn't believe that, and he doesn't believe that because he has flattered himself that they're not that bad. He's not like other people, or or, or God wouldn't be that petty, so he lies to himself. You see, he flatters himself. He deceives himself. Matthew Henry says, sinners are self-destroyers by being self-flatterers. While he goes on in sin, the wicked man thinks he does wisely and well for himself, and either does not see or will not admit the evil and danger of his wicked practices." His licentiousness he pretends to be simply his just liberty. I can I can look at attractive women and, and lust secretly in my heart. I'm a guy. It's okay. I can uh, desire someone else's husband. But my marriage is difficult. It's my liberty, it's my freedom. His fraud passes for his prudence. Yes, I cheat a little on my tax returns, but everybody does, and the government doesn't owe the money. I'm just trying to, you know, keep what is mine. His persecuting the people of God, and we can do that in a thousand different ways, he suggests to himself as a piece of necessary justice. If his own conscience threatens him for what he does, he says, God will not require it. I shall have peace though I go on. Satan could not deceive them if they did not deceive themselves. Satan couldn't deceive them unless they were deceiving themselves, and that's what the wicked do. And this wicked attitude then produces uh, wicked actions. Verses 3 and 4, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Notice the sins of omission and commission there. That um, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit, sins of commission. He ceased to act wisely and do good, omission. He plots trouble on his bed, commission. He does not reject evil. It just kind of comes along and that looks like a good idea, let's do that. The suggestions of the devil make sense to him and and he does not reject it. And so sins of omission and then he's plunging into evil. But I want you to note here how David begins in verse 3, the... the nature of the human heart, the wicked heart, is, is always proven with what comes out of his mouth. It, it just struck me as I was studying this that while we uh, generally, primarily identify wicked people by what they do with their hands, so they steal, they murder, um, they commit sexual sin, um, they sell drugs, whatever. We, we, we identify sinful people by what they do with their hands in the Bible God primarily identifies wicked people with what they say, what comes out of their mouth. You'll find this throughout uh, scripture, and specifically lying. Lying is the, maybe the primary evidence of a wicked heart. So, Psalm 36, verse 3, the words of his, uh, sorry, um, Psalm 10, verse 7, his mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. Psalm 52 verse 2, your tongue plots destruction, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. A lying mouth is one of the primary evidences of an evil heart. I read recently an article by Leslie Vernick entitled Five Indicators of an Evil and Wicked Heart. And I'll just name the first two. She said, one, evil hearts are experts at creating confusion and contention. That's trouble in Psalm 36. They twist the facts. They mislead. They lie. They avoid taking responsibility, deny reality, make up stories, and withhold information. Psalm 58, verse 3, even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward. Spreading lies. Two, she says, evil hearts are experts at fooling others with their smooth speech and flattering words. But if you look at the fruit of their lives or follow through, the follow through of their words, you'll find no real evidence of godly growth. It's all smoke in mirrors. Uh, One critical way to examine our hearts is ask ourselves, what comes, what comes out of our mouth? When we're, when we're counseling or encouraging each other, pay attention to the words. Pay attention. Do, do the words of, of my mouth cause clarity and healing and unity and peace? The wisdom that's from above is peaceable and pure. Or are the words being spoken, do they cause confusion, chaos, Division, conflict, distrust. And and, and when, when 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 we hear those words from our mouth or the mouth of someone else, just apply scripture. It isn't just a bad habit. It is the evidence of wickedness. The words of wicked people bring trouble and deceit. And this is the world then we live in, where all the spiritual conversation going on in the heart of the wicked people is, is in, in the wrong things, they're, they're, the, the plans they're making are for evil things, the, the, the energy of the heart is running in directly contrary to what is right and good. Where, where he ought to be active, seeking God, blessing others, there he's passive. Where he, where he ought to be avoiding evil, there he's active. And so what happens? Well, this world happens. Evil runs in the streets. Lives are destroyed. Marriages are destroyed. Institutions are destroyed. Nations are destroyed. As the devil gives his counsel deep in the heart of wicked men and people willingly follow. And you read about it in the newspapers every day. That's the world we live in. But, praise God, that is not all that there is. David paints this dark picture of the reality, the truth of evil, actual evil in this world. And then he just turns his focus and delights in the goodness and the glory of God. And and it is is all the more magnificent against the the dark backdrop of the evil of men. And so over against all the, the reality, the awful reality of wicked men stands the beauty of God. And and against the the wicked counsel of the devil stand the the judgments of God, the justice and the word of God. Against the chaos and devastation of evil, all the conflict and destruction of evil, there is God in all of his love and faithfulness as he nurtures and cares and protects And so in verses 5 and 6, David sort of lists the glories of God in in, in their grandeur. And then verses 7 through 9, he explains what it's like to live there with this God. And so let's quickly just look at the the glories explained, verses 5 through 6. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heaven. The steadfast love of God is his, his committed, covenanted, delight in, love for Doing good for his people. But David here speaks of a steadfast love that even extends to creation in general. That, that God sends rain on the just and the unjust. That God, God provides for all of his, his creatures. But of course, there's a specific love here for, for his own. And so the steadfast love where, where sin destroys, destroys and divides, God nurtures and cares and protects. The faithfulness of God. Guarantees that the steadfast love will never fade. Where evil deceives and, and, and divides, God's, God's promises stand immutable. They're not going anywhere. The righteousness of God, the, the, the glorious goodness of God, the, the sheer goodness of God that assures that good must and will triumph. And evil must and will be destroyed. And the judgments, referring here most likely to the the justice of God in the world, but specifically as revealed in Scripture, the words of God. God going on record that he has engaged this world and is going to make all things right. But notice David doesn't just list steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, justice, judgments, but he exalts them. Your steadfast love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, in other words, it's, it's limitless, it's beyond measure. Psalm 103, uh, as, ha- as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And, and back in those days, you're right, they don't have satellites, they don't have, um, they just have a sense that it's vast. Of course, with our satellites, we also have a sense of it's an unbelievably vast. And David's saying, Lord, your steadfast love is is limitless, like that. Your faithfulness to the clouds, to the skies, it's beyond man's ability to to grasp, to comprehend. Your righteousness like the mighty mountains, invincible, immutable, immovable. They stand there against all the storms of man's wickedness. There is the righteousness of God, a rock that's not going to move. Your judgments are like the great deep, a deep, unfathomable mystery, as unsearchable as the planets. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? He is unsearchable, his ways are past finding out. That's God in his magnificence, in his glory. And we need to look there, you see, because as we live in this world of men, our focus gets fixed on the world of men, and we forget that this world of men is not all there is. In fact, this world of men is a mist. It's a fog that soon will be blown away. And what stands is the glory of God, who is overwhelmingly awesome in his being. All of his attributes are mighty and majestic and vast and beautiful and glorious. He towers over this world of men. Eternal, immutable, sovereign, good, and glorious. And to know that God, then, is is the great experience of human life. Verses 7 through 9. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. It's such a picture of of safety and security and intimacy. If you've ever seen a a hen gather her chicks under her wings, that's exactly what David's talking about. To be there close to God, to be sheltered by the faithfulness of God. The hymn writer says it well, children of the heavenly father safely in his bosom gather. Nestling bird nor star in, uh, in heaven, such a refuge air was given. More secure is no one ever than the children of the father. Unto them his grace he showeth, showeth and their sorrows all he knoweth. We can gather ourselves under the wings of God. Shelter ourselves there. And and being there, we can feast on the goodness of God. Verse 8, they feast on the abundance of your house, this lavish banquet of grace, this overflowing buffet of multiplied kindnesses. God serves his children in his house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. Isn't it amazing that that when, when God calls us to salvation, he doesn't simply call us to a different status. He calls us to himself. To, to experience God. That's what he... So, so Jesus will say, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and, and Jesus, the one whom, whom you've sent. To, to know God and to, to experience God and to experience God to be paradise. The, the word here for delights, the river of delights, it's the word Eden in plural form. What was the, what was the, the blessedness of Eden? The blessedness of Eden was God. It wasn't just that there weren't thorns or thistles there, God was there. And though that was lost because of sin, God here amazingly, uh, David says, no, no, it's still there. It can still be entered into and and tasted. We can drink still from the river of the pleasures, the delights, the Eden of God. In fact, in the gospel, that's exactly what we're we're told, come, drink, drink. God invites you, you see, to, to, to tear your idolatrous uh, heart away from all these, these empty cisterns that are offered to you in the world. Come, drink of God. Drink of God, the river of His delights, because He's a fountain of life. And that theme runs all the way through the Bible, this, this overflowing river that, that uh, is the, the pleasure of God that gives life and light. You have that in the rivers in, in the Garden of Eden. You have it in Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God. God is there. Ezekiel 47 is another uh, prophetic uh, telling of, uh, Ezekiel has a vision, and, and, and he's by the temple, and the, uh, the uh, Son of Man takes him outside, and, and there flowing out from under the, the wall of the temple is a stream and and they follow it down a thousand cubits and and a thousand cubits down it's about ankle deep and then and they go another thousand cubits and now it's it's a, it's thigh deep and they go another thousand cubits and it's it's chest deep and another thousand cubits and you can't cross it you see the the love and the beauty and the goodness of God is this river that just gets deeper and deeper and deeper the farther in you go you can't exhaust it it's the river that we read about in revelation chapter 22 when John says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, you can see it, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city with, and on either side the tree of life, Garden of Eden, with 12 kinds of fruit yielding each, its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, But the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and God will dwell with man. That's what God invites you to. And that, friends, is light. That's just light. It's fullness of life, fullness of joy. With you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. And the psalm concludes then on that note. that that Because... um, God has promised these things and offered these things that one day life is going to be as it was meant to be. One day the the wicked are going to lie fallen. They're going to be thrust down, unable to rise. One day the steadfast love of God will, will, uh, as God continues in his love, just blossom into the glory of a new heaven and a new earth. It's a wonderful song for us to remember as we live in this world. And it's a wonderful psalm because it points us in a beautiful way to our Lord. Because Jesus Christ is the one that David is speaking of as he talks of the goodness of God. Jesus is the refuge. He's the one that's brought us near, who's gathered us and reconciled us to the Father so that by grace and grace alone we can live under the, the shadow of God's wings. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever take us from God's hand. Until he returns or calls us home here in the steadfast love of Christ, we stand. Jesus is the banquet feast of grace spread for us day after day in the wilderness of this world. Bread from heaven that is able to to feed and nourish us, the water of life that Jesus invites us continually, come to me, drink, and you will never thirst again. And in Jesus Christ, in his life, we see light. John writes exactly that. In him was life, and that light was the light of men. You see, friends, it's in Christ that we experience God this way. And the wonder of the gospel, you see, is that, is that Jesus Christ came for the people of, some, of verses 1 through 4. Jesus, because that's the only kind of people there were. Uh, Jesus came so that the people of verses 1 through 4, the wicked people who lie, who uh, have wickedness and, and uh, hold counsel with transgression, deep in their heart, Jesus Christ came so that those people, you and, and I, could have the experience of the steadfast love and the faithfulness and the righteousness and the judgments of God. And we could find those things to be a refuge and a banquet a table and a fountain of life. I hope that's beautiful good news to you the question for you then is simply this are you, are you are you, coming under the shelter are you coming to the banquet table are you drinking of Jesus you're invited come whoever is thirsty let him come to the waters come and drink whoever wishes freely let him drink of the water of life do you have you If you never have, you can begin tonight. If you uh, are living your Christian life without drinking, repent and commit yourself to abide in Christ, abide in his love, drink of his pleasures. Come to know God this way. Don't settle for a Christianity that does not introduce you to a God of delights, a God who satisfies your soul a God who fills you with longing for good things and satisfies them with himself. God will give you the desire, that desire of your heart. Let's pray. O oh God in heaven, who are we that you should invite us to come and know you this way, to know you to be magnificent and good and precious, to experience you as a river of delight, a fountain of life. God, we want to know you this way. We confess that we have dawdled with the things of God. And we've been in love with our sins, with our idols. We are the people who have revealed the evil in our heart with lies and with words that wound and hurt But Lord, we, we thank you that we can confess our sin. We can acknowledge our guilt. We can humble ourselves and turn to you. And you welcome us for you gave your son for us. Oh God, I pray that the truths that we've studied tonight would take root in our life. And when transgression speaks to us, we will, we will be able to answer with the word of God that man does not live by the bread alone by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and that we will not take counsel from the devil but from our Lord Jesus Christ and that we, Lord, will seek him believing that in him there is a banquet feast for our soul. There's a river of delight to taste so that, Lord, we could be people more and more who can confess honestly that you are our portion earth has nothing we desire besides you. That we believe and are experiencing that fullness of joy is found at God's right hand. And thank you, Lord, that those who put their hope in you shall never be ashamed. Those who turn their back on the passing pleasures of this life in order to know the eternal treasure of knowing you will not be ashamed. But one day... Will be fully satisfied in the presence of Jesus Christ. Oh God, may we then live. May we then live for that day. Oh Lord, I pray that the reality of your being, your goodness, your faithfulness, your love, your righteousness and justice, would carry us through another week as we follow after Jesus and pray in His name. Amen.